episode 68 with Ken Dockendorf is brought to you by Good Lad Clothing and Parkside Brewery. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to A Hoops Journey, episode 68. Don't forget to like and subscribe. While you're at it, grab uh, your favorite beverage, sit down in a comfortable spot, or if you're driving in your car, because this is going to be a great one. A man who has given back to the game of basketball more than many people in our province combined. You probably know the name, you know the face, and uh, we're excited to learn a little bit more about this man and and, uh, how basketball sort of come into his life, talking with him offline here. It doesn't count the COVID year, so 50 years in the game coaching. Provincial champion, just been there, done that, seen it all. The current president of uh, BC Boys High School Basketball. <clears throat> and uh, we are more than thrilled to have none other than Mr. Ken Dockendorf with us. How are you, Mr. Dockendorf? I'm doing fine under the circumstances of COVID. It's been um, a different year. That's a good way to put it. Things are looking up, I guess, and... Um, looking a little bit better for you know September which is a positive and what are you doing you just got back from walking the dog how are you finding and getting through your days these the, the, you know in, in summer here and getting through the heat well the heat is uh, something i often deal with in the summer because i go to um uh, palm springs quite a bit mm-hmm. and it's never really under 40 celsius so this isn't a real challenge but just generally it's been um most challenging because there are there have been just less things that I've been able to do. Uh, well, one being a volunteer and not being able to do anything. And so it's been, uh, and then isolation as well, not for longest time, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've just kept myself busy by, you know, walking my dog, working around the house and um, playing a bit of golf and things like that. How's the golf game? Uh, well, let's go to the next topic. <laughs> Golf is, I think, the most difficult sport to attain any kind of reasonable level of competency. And so if you're not out there practicing and playing on a regular basis, uh, your game struggles right away. I played last week at Guilford and was out of my mind. And we're off to uh, Savage Creek later today, just a little 15-hole one. So I'm completely expecting to absolutely blow up and be terrible because that's just how it works, right? It's a practice (laughs) game like everything. Let's get into it. Thanks for being with us. Super excited. Um, You probably don't know, but you have been requested by numerous people and coaches and players across the province. And to have you on is is an honor. And for what you've done for the game speaks for itself. And let's just start to get right into it. How was life for you as a little guy? Where'd you grow up? And um, what was it about basketball that you got drew you to it? Well, in my early years, uh, right through about the middle of grade nine, I lived in a community you've probably heard about, heard of, and that's called Prince Rupert. And so in Prince Rupert in the uh, 50s and that, there weren't a lot of activities. There was no indoor pool. There was no ice rink. There were basically two activities that um, kids got involved in. In the winter, sorry, in the rain, rain season, it was basketball indoors, right? And in the summer, it was baseball. And uh, both of those games were bought to Prince Rupert, I believe, by the American military forces who were there. And they had a line of defense from Alaska down probably to Washington State. 
and they were there for a number of years and uh, they brought their games with them basketball and baseball and that's why you'll see up and down the coast you know there's been a big involvement with basketball and so i sort of fell in love with the game in prince super playing in their community leagues and things like that unfortunately i wasn't able to stay there from a basketball perspective past about the middle of grade nine because my family we moved down to uh, the vancouver area but the love of the game had been instilled in me already and then it came down and um we went to an old, a school for a few months called King Ed, where I think uh, now uh, the uh, Vancouver Hospital, General Hospital is. And then I went to a, a high, a middle, I guess it was a secondary, no, a junior high called Alpha for the rest of grade nine. And then I was off to Burnaby North for grade 10 and 11 and 12. We've had a few people from the Rupert area on the show. Yeah, I bet. Quite a unique community, hey? What, what do you remember from it? I mean, obviously you moved at a younger age, but what did you take from that that you brought? And I'm sure it still holds dear to your heart to these days, when you, especially when you see the, the Mel Bishops that have done and been doing it for so long. And, you know, their, their teams are always competitive, but it's such a unique place to be, right? It's a real big part of the culture, the sporting culture up there. I mean, they were back in the back, I guess it would be in the 50s there. They were running these community leagues from about grade Oh, I think I probably started about grade five playing in them. And, um, and then, of course, the Rainmakers uh, were the team you ultimately wanted to play on. In fact, if I had stayed, uh, as I remember recalls here, if I had stayed in Prince Rupert, I would have played on a team, I believe that was second in BC in 1960, and their star was uh, John Olson. Okay. So that would have been my in my age group. So... Um, yeah, and then, of course, you know, with it raining so much, you have to play indoors, although I can remember playing a lot of my you know, learning basketball outdoors in a hoop with the rain pouring down. But it was, yeah, it was a good community to grow it up in, and uh, it, basketball is a big part of the culture, and uh, I got uh, bitten by the bug, and it sort of has stayed with me ever since. Yeah, pretty big bug for you. And so you played those high school years at North? I did. Yeah. And what was it like? Was the program any good? Did you have a coach or a mentor early on that kind of, or was it just you? Like it was, like you said, the bug was in you and it didn't matter who was coaching and who your teammates were. You just loved the game itself. As I recall, it wasn't <laughs> a great experience because uh, at that time, Burnaby North was a, a track power. Track was the, the main sport. And, uh, but we did have an active team and, um, there was one thing I think that stood out in my mind <clears throat> my grade 12 year, and I was probably a reasonable player. We had 10 pretty good players. And so the coach split us into two fives for the season. And then at the end of the year, he took our five best and we played together as a unit in the playoffs. And uh, we lost, I think, pretty quickly to maybe Burnaby Central or Burnaby South, because in those days they had uh, grade 13s and we didn't. So it was right. a fairly short trip in the playoffs. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most was, I'm not sure this is the way the game is supposed to be coached because um, there really weren't, a, there wasn't really a lot of instruction. And for some reason, I just felt that the five in, five out, and then down to five as a philosophy of being successful wasn't really the best way to do it. So I think, if anything, I got a bit motivated in a negative way as to maybe how things should be done. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, too. If you're conscious and aware of what's happening around you, I mean, if you spend enough time in the game, and I think anybody that's spent time as a player or a coach or whatever, 
you learn, you can learn just as much from a bad situation as a good situation. And sometimes even take things away and go, okay, well, that's something I'm never going to do because that was awful. Right. And, uh, just interesting. Did the coach just do time, a time limit too? Was it like four minutes you got and then you're out? Or if you guys, if your unit was playing well, did you get to stay longer? Or how did oh, that no. work? No. no. Yeah, yeah. no. Five in, five out. But then I think in playoffs, <laughs> maybe we were able to play a little bit longer in a shift if we were playing re- reasonably well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Interesting perspective. And then so that, you know, high school wraps up for you. Uh, where do we move on to post-secondary and then how and when did you know that coaching was something that you wanted to, you know, pursue? I went to UBC then. I went into the Bachelor of uh, Commerce program there, which at that time was, uh, and still probably is, a five-year program. And I uh, went out for the uh, JV. At that time, they had a frosh team. And I remember going out for the team, trying out. And a guy you'd know, Peter Mullins, would be walking around up top watching us working out. But for me, it didn't work out very well because I had to commute every day from uh, Burnaby. So I wasn't able to really try to, I didn't really have, have much opportunity to put too much into it. One of the things that I probably um, kept my the fire alive in me for, I mean, I continued to play the game in junior men's and men's leagues a bit. But uh, I think one of the things that struck me the most was that the BC tournament, BC High School Boys tournament at that time, was in War Memorial Gym at UBC. And so come March, early March, um, you would uh, skip out of classes for four days or three days and go down, go and watch these games. And it it was uh, it was a really um, motivating thing for me when I when I saw the excitement and the involvement of kids and coaches from all around the province. I think it had a real, well, it did have a real lasting impression on me. And then from there, I um, moved to Toronto and uh, worked in Toronto for about a year and a half, hated every moment of it. But I did play in a men's senior men's league team there. It was just sort of the beginnings of basketball and it was out of the Y in downtown Toronto. And so I kept my involvement as much as I could Then came back here and worked for the old BC Tell and they're both in management training programs. And then I had, to, I guess I had some friends and I developed an interest in teaching. And I kind of, as I went through my different, um, you know, jobs, um, I sort of maintained an interest in maybe teaching would be a good thing. Went off to uh, Europe, uh, married, and we went to Europe for six months, traveled all the way from, uh, I guess, England through uh, Morocco, through Turkey and Germany and Scotland and back to Canada for six months. And then on a, we got back on a Thursday and Friday was the day before schools UBC started again for like teacher training. So this is where it's a little different uh, than what's happening today. I went out to uh, UBC where they were doing their uh, last sort of interviews and finalizing their, their uh, enrollment for the next year. And I went to the guy and I said, yeah, I'd like to get into education if I could. And the guy says to me, well, we start Monday. You're a little bit late uh, to get into teacher training. And I said, oh, it's okay. And so I turned and walked, started walking away. And the guy said, oh, well, what's your degree? And I said, well, I've got a BCom from UBC. And he says, come here. <laughs> and so on a Friday before teacher training started, or whatever you call it, um, I got into the PDP program. Come on. <laughs> Things were a little different then. Must have been the European tan or something. Yeah, I don't oh, know who knows, right? right? That they didn't have any commerce teachers. Yeah, and they didn't have uh, many. Maybe UBC grads going into that field. 
That's absolutely so from hilarious. There I did my training at Burnaby South and stuff. And then I did my last teacher training at uh, Maple Ridge. And on the last day of my teacher training, the principal calls me in and he says, how'd you like a job here next year? And I didn't had it, not expressed any, you know, involvement in extra cricket. And so I said, oh, that sounds good. So moved out to the Maple Ridge area and um, started teaching in 1970, 71. Wow. That's crazy. Got to UB, got to the school. And the next year they, they didn't have very many coaches. And I said, well, I'll coach having never coached. And yeah. I was going to say, so you'd never coached up to this point. Hey, never. I'd just been a player, you know, playing around in men's league and stuff like that. And so they put me, they gave me the grade nine boys team at that time, but it also had grade eights on the team. And so this was sort of a learn as you go experience for me. Yeah. And after about a month or so, I said to myself, I don't know if grade eights and grade nines can really play together. There seems to be a little discrepancy in their age and skill development. Yeah. So I created the first grade eight team at Maple Ridge at that point and uh, coached the eights and nines. And then I ended up just coaching the eights. And so that was the beginning of uh, sort of my coaching career. And then the next year I was on shift at Maple Ridge and I went with uh, uh, one of the VPs and it was the first year of Westview. Right. And so I coached a lot of the kids uh, at Maple Ridge too. So they took half the kids from the grade eight and nine teams from Maple Ridge the prior year. And that became the new teams for Westview. Mm-hmm. So I think that year I coached the juniors for Maple Ridge and Westview. Not quite sure how I managed that, but that was the beginning <laughs> of my uh, falling. And then the following year, I was just at Westview doing the juniors. And then the year after that, in those days, they would hire teachers on the basis of what they would be able to do for the school yeah. other than just teaching. So I had obviously expressed an interest and an involvement in basketball. And so they brought me back to Maple Ridge as the senior voice coach. A lot of the kids I'd already coached right in the junior ranks. And let's touch on that a little bit. It's, it's, I know we could go on forever, but it's a frustrating thing for me. I mean, obviously knowing that I'm a little bit more privileged to be at a private school where we can ask in an interview and see if people are interested, but just the, the school culture and the whole coaching thing, you know, like you've got a Jeff Gurley these days who can't even get into his own gym because he doesn't work at Tupper, but is willing to give up hours so that the kids can have an experience. And it's just frustrating that we we can't say to someone, what are you interested in doing? Because I, I view, personally, I view teaching as not just the curriculum and what happens in and out of the classroom. There's so many other things that create culture, that create an experience for a student, whether they're in drama or music or sports. Right. When, when, when they get involved, they feel more connected to that environment. And then your environment as a whole is better. So, you know, you're just touching on already. Your principal just says to you, hey, let's hire you. Hey, what do you want to do? Why can't we ask those questions and see what people are interested in doing? Well, I think the um, probably the first sort of um, issue that occurred where you couldn't do that. So that was the early 70s when I started. So probably by the I'm guessing here a bit, but by the middle of about the 1980s, there had been um, some issues with strikes, et cetera. And the union had sort of come on with a new, with a philosophy that this is just about teaching and academics. And it's not proper that you can you know, decide between people based on what they'll do after school or during school. And so I think somewhere around in the early 80s, the philosophy changed. In fact, today in the public school system, the administrative people who do the hiring are not legally, well, I don't know if legally is the right term, they're not able to ask the question, um, well, what can you do with the school after hours? You can't ask that question. Mm-hmm. 
So maybe you can interpret some of their answers and other questions as to what they might involve, but you can't ask it. Yeah. And the thing that's sort of sad, I don't quite understand is because the philosophy we have is dictated by, you know, um, economic, by finances, we, um, we just can't, we just don't seem to be able to understand the full scope of education. And so, you know, like in our district and a lot of districts, a number of the schools that are the least desirable for parents to send their kids to are the ones that have the least amount of involvement for kids after school. There's the, I, I mean, there's a direct correlation between what your school is willing to do and able to do after school with these different programs, drama, music, sports, and the desirability of having your kid go there. And it's so obvious, but the, the, um, the ministry and the administrators and the school districts don't want to deal with that problem. Yeah. I guess they feel their hands are just tied legally, um, administratively, financially, probably. Yeah. But um, in fact, they did a study a few years ago and never heard the results of it. But there was so much graffiti and, and negativism going on in the, some of, many of the schools in England that they decided that they were going to go out and they were going to hire people to actually coach and be involved um, after school with kids. They, were, they just didn't know how to approach these problems. So they tried that. And I never heard what the, the end result was. Hmm. But there's no doubt there's a total relationship between the two yeah. to make the experience for kids the most enjoyable. I couldn't agree anymore. Um, thanks for sharing those sentiments. So early 70s, you start to build the program. You're learning on the fly, as you say. When did you start to feel confident in yourself and your coaching ability? And how and when did you start to develop all these relationships out in the Valley with the, you know, the Richies, the Dons, the Goulets, the people that have come and gone in coaching? Um, and when did you feel like you were confident enough to be the senior coach and you weren't kind of questioning yourself on your drives home after practice and games sometimes, although maybe you still do as we all do, but probably all. <laughs> well, I remember my first sort of um, experience. One of my first ones um, in those days, we were in a league that extended from Maple Ridge to hope. Wow. And, um, and I was coaching juniors. Of course, I started coaching juniors. No, my first year back at Maple Ridge there, I, I coached the grade eights and the seniors and i took that group of grade eights all the way through but i think my first real experience and eye-opening experience was we went up to abbotsford and we were playing junior games against a, a coach called barry stewart a yes that time and we went into their gym and we got our butts handed to us at every one of the levels at eights nines and juniors mm -hmm. i remember coming back and saying to another coach at make ridge i said what do we have to do to get our level to their level. And then I think at that point, that's where I just started, you know, going to clinics, uh, playing as many different people as possible. Probably by about my, one of my very first years, I ran into a fella that you might know called Rich Chambers. Heard who of him. was at that time uh, a practice teaching or uh, a PDP teacher at Port Moody. And so I started to develop some, uh, you know, uh, relationships there. But the other thing that was really, I think, a motivator is in those days we played, or at the senior level, we played in a league at Mission, Abbotsford, MEI, and for a while there, Chilliwack and Hope, and they had some great teams, and even Agassiz. And it took the first group of kids I had in senior, it took us five years 
to win a league game against any of Mission, Abbotsford, or MEI. Like we would lose two every year. But every year we started mm-hmm. to make a little bit more progress. And then I think in the fifth year of senior, uh, thereabouts, we actually made the Fraser Valleys. And that was a major step up. So just through osmosis, going to clinics, and learning on the fly, I was able to start to you know gain confidence that I sort of knew what I was doing and, and all the relationships that would have occurred at that time. Mm-hmm. Fraser Valley was a really large organization, a lot of great people involved. And it was um, an excellent environment for a young coach to be involved in. And great shout out for the legend, to rest in peace, Mr. Barry Stewart. Um, he was my summer games coach. Uh, so, you know, Tommy Welsh and Cam and Jason Mahar and I were driving out to Abbotsford every day. And man, he, him and Jim Day were the coaches. And the yeah. guy was an absolute character. Like, you oh, could yeah. tell he really cared about us too. But he just was such a unique character. Like... Mitchell used yeah. the backboard. My, my got a ba- I got a, what did he, he always say? I got a backboard set up in the bread basket. I make my wife bank it off the bread basket. Use the backboard, right? He's just hilarious. Jim Day actually was a student at Maple Ridge. I know that. I know. He coached uh, the senior girls, junior and senior girls at Maple Ridge. Yeah, it was hilarious. We was all the way out to Port Alberni and sleeping in sleeping bags in a classroom and I'm sure at one point they probably just were questioned the decision they had made after dealing with us in Port Alberni for a whole week. But it was uh, it was an experience and something I'll never forget. And I remember the year we won the BCs, he hand wrote me a letter. Like I got this letter and card in the mail. And because obviously we, well, not obviously, but we beat Abbotsford in the semi that year. So, you know, he said I was obviously cheering for Apprentice and their team, but, you know, it was great and da, da, da. And just this handwritten letter, I was like, who actually does that? You know, like just... Yeah. absolute, you know, solid human being. And I mean, for you to be around those people and to learn, like you say, through osmosis of understanding that it's a process. So yeah, we're taking some lumps, but you're also, it seems like your perspective is you're not taking anything for granted. You're taking it all in every possession, every game, learning something and going, okay, what can I take from that and put into our program? Or what do we need to do, to, you know, to, to close the gap a little bit? And that's just interesting stuff. And cool. Well, and the yeah. program, yeah had to i realized pretty quickly you had to have a program in order to compete with a lot of these schools like a, a school at that in that time you know like centennial they had like six feeders yeah we had one feeder westview and ourselves so you're always you know competing against teams schools that had larger numbers and greater traditions in terms of basketball so you know we always treated like our grade eight right through eight through juniors as important as the seniors because it was a building block process yeah. We had to really develop our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And when did the program get to the point where, you know, provincials was uh, kind of a regular thing? And, you know, early on, 86, you get the title and just some awesome experiences and starting to create some rivalries, right? Like the the centennial rivalries, the the rivalry with Pitt Meadows, obviously, and just, you know, taking things to another level with being involved with team camps and, you know, your spring leagues and all that. I mean, just so many things that you had done in such a great amount of time. But, you know, I, I hold those things near and dear to me as well. But when did Maple Ridge, the, when did the Ramblers really start to uh, get rolling? And and before you answer that too, I, I always think of, you know, when we when we would play you guys, you know, watching the guys come in and they park their car and then they've got the sweet like bag that you've got them from the States, right? With their name on it and the Rambler on the, on the end of the bag. You always had wicked warm up tops. 
Um, they always, you guys always had the best stuff. You had a different feel to your program. And that, I'm guessing that that was an intentional thing for you to create for those kids because it, it was, it identified them throughout the province. They'd walk into a gym and you would know, well, that's the Ramblers, right? Just by the bag that they were carrying. Well, I'm a good copycatter. <laughs> and so, um, I, uh, we were, we were down playing in the U S a lot. We'd go down like a Christmas and I saw what they did and how they ran their their, pro- their programs. And whether it be through the bags or whatever, mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that's the way the best programs in the country work, eh? So I learned from them in terms of some of those little things. But the rivalries, I was very fortunate because, as I said, we first started, when I first started coaching, we were playing against Mission with a, a guy called Brian Victor. And he was just an absolutely outstanding coach. And then you play Abbotsford with Sam Vandermeulen and then uh, Norm Bradley. MEI had a great variety of, of different coaches, high-quality coaches. And so you had to learn how to survive. And they were our main rivalries for so long. And then we got into the North League when they did some restructuring. And then, of course, I knew Chambers. And, um, in fact, I had um, was probably one of the people involved in getting Rich Goulet the, his job at Pitt Meadows okay. way back when because he'd left St. Thomas Moore. And one of the people I worked for at uh, Maple Ridge was brought in as the uh, the vice principal at Pitt. And he, he said to me, he said, well, Pitt's in, you know, not a very good, doesn't have very good status in the, in the uh, world of academics or athletics. So I'm going to look after the academics and I need to find somebody who can look after the athletics. So I said, well, why don't you try to reach a fellow called Rich Goulet? I know he's uh, got a a great work uh, ethic and he'll really work hard if you can uh, him. And so he, they signed him. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of starting to have a real program for us. We, so by that time we were really into rivalries with Centennial, Terry Fox, uh, Port Moody, and those, those kinds of teams. We did have, um, as I said, a, a theater called Westview. And um, fortunately for myself and our program, we got uh, just an absolutely outstanding person and one of the greatest junior coaches, I believe, ever in BC, a fellow called Lorne Ward. Ward, yes. And he sir. worked as hard as he could at developing the program at Westview. I continued to work at the juniors and the eights and the seniors at Ridge. And then every year, the two groups came together. So by the early, early 80s, we were starting to get some real talent in. And then it was just a question of molding them. But again, at that time, to get out of the Fraser Valleys, there were only three teams that were getting out. And lots of times, six, at least six of the top 10 teams were in the Fraser Valleys, whether it be North Surrey or Semiam or North Delta, um, MEI, uh, Mission, Abbotsford, and on and on the list goes. And Centennial and, and, and so on. So it was very, very competitive. But in 1986, we put a group of kids together that at the beginning of the year, they were right. In fact, it's the most unusual year of coaching. And I guess you could say success that I've ever experienced. Hmm. So in 1986, in the early rankings, they had us ranked number one. So I walked into the gym. It was in mid-October. And I couldn't get in because it was locked. So when I got in, and there was these huge pillars all through the gym holding the roof up. So they had developed, it had developed um, some sort of um, structural problem. And so we had no gym in 1986. The other end of the school had a little bandbox, sort of a little bit. The three-point lines would, would go out of bounds. And they had wooden backboards. 
And so that's where we practiced. Oh, my God. And we played all of our away games at uh, Westview Junior High Gym or Burnaby Central sometimes or Pitt Meadows sometimes. And um, we were, you know, still fairly successful. Um, and then we got down towards the end of the year. And unfortunately, I had to have a couple of team, a couple of our starters leave the team for discipline reasons. And so now we were down to like three starters and a couple of junior guys we brought up. And so we had a, a team of about six players with some other juniors I'd brought in. And we went on and we were third, almost got eliminated in the Fraser Valleys. And then we won the BCs with no gym. I uh, know a uh, skeleton screw a crew of guys back or left rather after we had some issues, but some of those guys were fairly unique. Three of them were on the BC first all-star team. Yeah. Uh, and uh, fairly one unique. of them, one of them was a first all-star in the Frasers. And then the BCs, they decided not to let him be a uh, all-star, but I still feel today that he was probably the best half court passer in the history of high school basketball here. Who's Steve that? Nash was a better overall passer. Uh, you might have heard of him. He um, he went on and uh, became the um, – he was the father of a, a player, of a, a young man playing Division One basketball and a young daughter playing Division One basketball. And uh, he does happen to coach now at uh, Walnut Grove for Girls. His name is Darren Rowell. Ah. So he was really? the point guard. Yeah, no way. And came in and uh, – he came in at the beginning of grade uh, 11 from Westview and he was their post player. And so we're practicing and he's making these unbelievable passes all over the floor. And I said to myself, gee, I think he should be the point guard maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was a really unique group. Mm -hmm. you know, guys like Glenn Cote went on and played in, um, you know, the college ranks here, Douglas and that. And the MVP was a guy called Todd Osborne and he was about a six, three or four guy. And then you had a 6'11 guy I went and played in the States called John Carlson. And, um, you know, it was a really unique group of guys. And uh, they uh, just got focused at the right time and um, won an extremely difficult BCs at the time because the team we beat in the semis, you don't, you need luck in this game. And I'll never forget, it was against Kelowna, who has been ranked one or two all year. And J.D. Jackson and Vernon were one or two. And they were right. probably, we were probably in there about three. We played in the semis against uh, Kelowna. And um, we were leading by two. And uh, as the buzzer went, they, um, Kelowna shot the ball. Swish. Three points. Oops. Nope. His foot hit the line. Oh, my. So we tied. So we go to OT. We beat him in OT. They had guys like Mike Clark mm -hmm, and of course. a whole bunch of really talented kids who went on and played at UBC. Yep. Then we played J.D. Jackson in the final, and um, this is a little different than the way the game's played now, but in the final against J.D. Jackson, 75% of our shots taken were below the dotted circle in the jump circle at the foul line. 75% of the shots we took were below the, the dotted circle. <laughs> It was so bad that at one point, the 6'11 guy went on and played down in the States. He complained to me. He said, coach, I don't like this very much because I never get the ball. Yeah. <laughs> the ball just went to one guy who scored every time. And then he got the rebounds and whatever. But anyway, it was a different game then. What was the plan for J.D. Jackson? Uh, the plan we used, I think, in every game in that tournament, it was called um, T and one. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You, you just, did, hey? 
Yeah. We just couldn't let the best guys in every team. I think one team had every team we played had some great players. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think we tee in one Kelowna because they had so many good players. Right. But uh, we held them to probably like 25. And that was enough because our inside game was so strong. Yeah. And then we, then we had a number of good teams after that too. For sure. What was it about that crew? And, and was it just, you know, at this time, Maple Ridge, probably a very blue collar sort of, you know, hard nosed area. Right. So a bunch of kids with, with good families that, okay, well, we don't have a gym, no big deal. Oh, okay. Well, a couple of our guys had to go. All right. Well, someone else step in. I mean, that's, like you say, it's about as unique as you can get for a coaching experience, right? And then to be able to reach the pinnacle and win the whole thing, you go, how in the world? Because there's other years where you're like, I know, you know, we're like, wow, how did we not win it that year, right? But then you're like, we won it of all years. That was the year, right? Like it says a lot about you and the culture and the kids, hey? Well, often you find out who you are by facing adversity. Mm. And we faced adversity all year long. I mean, we, we really, at many times, we didn't have 10 kids, so we couldn't even practice full court. Mm-hmm. And even if you could, one step over center, you were in the you know, top of the circle at the other end. <laughs> Wooden backboards tilted. On the side, you had little backboards. So we had, you know, we had, um, in terms of uh, facilities, like the worst you could have. But it's not about the facilities. It's about the kids. Mm-hmm. And they were motivated, and they felt they could compete with anybody, and they just focused, and they stayed at it. So mm-hmm. it's a great you know, tribute to the kids at that time because they just were determined and that made them even more determined. That's awesome. And can we talk before I forget, can we talk about the legendary, the legend of Maple Ridge basketball and air casts? Why every kid has to wear air casts. Kid, I, I know the story, but can you just share that? I mean, I think it's just, it's so unique and it's awesome. Well, I don't know. I, I think, I, Oh, here's, here's how it actually happened. Okay. I got about in the middle and I think it was around the late, 80s maybe early 90s got this really good player from westview his name was jordan kennedy i think he'd i think they had won the bcs maybe their last year at westview and he was about a six five guy about six five and very talented but he weighed about 280 pounds so every practice he would sprain his ankle Mm. and so i said to myself well he's never going to be able to play so I began searching to find out how I could brace an ankle better. So I ran into this guy somewhere in Vancouver, and he said, well, I sell ankle braces. So I went and looked at him. I said, okay, well, let's try those. So I put them on him. He never sprained his ankle again once mm-hmm. that year. So, you know, I'm not real quick on the pickup, but I did <laughs> figure out, you know what? This might prevent a thing called ankle sprains, which, of course, happens to every good player all of the time. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I just said, guys, we're wearing ankle braces. And if you don't wear them, you don't play. Love it. And now it's a bit more difficult today to have the kids use them. But really, we still have, have that same rule. And I mean, I can remember a kid going over like to like on a night, what would be a vertical 45 degree angle and um, just blowing his ankle right out. Played two days later. Yeah. But I would never use them on high, high-level players in college or university because mm. they're so good, your ankle won't go, but your knee might. Right. So they have been very, very good for us. And although in today's age and the culture we live in, it's more difficult to get kids to do things because they don't feel good when you first wear them. My daughters, I had them wear them as well when they played. And um, <laughs> they never sprained their ankles. <laughs> 
but they were a little ugly looking, but I've yeah. got more refined ones now. I love it. The big hockey bag, the Gatorade at the end of the bench, the styrofoam cups, and uh, a kid in a uniform with the clipboard. I love it. Those are Maple Ridge Rambler staples, and no one would have it any other way. Styrofoam cups. I never caught on to that until about the early 2000s. We're getting sick all the time. Guys have got the flu, whatever other guys get it. So I said, well, can't have this happening. So I thought, okay, well, now let's have cups. And they just throw the cup away after. Mm. No flu. Goals solved. There you go. There you go. I knew there's a method to the madness. Come on. And then, so you know, after that, you're still a young coach. You know, what is the the late '80s, the '90s? The rivalries continue. Why do you still stay so committed? And why do you start to be a part of all these different things and and open your gym to team camps and? and have this coaching community with you and still to this day being a part of it, you know, why did you want to just keep going and be so intense with it? And it's admirable because there's lots of people that have come and gone in the game, but few have dedicated so much time towards it. Well, I guess I'm fairly competitive. <laughs> and um, a lot of the coaches like the Rich Chamberses and the Don Van Osses and other people that I knew well or know well, they were pretty competitive too. So it, you would feed off each other, you know, and uh, that, that was one of the things. And I realized also from just watching, you know, how a lot of the American high schools operated, the kinds of things they did, the summer team camps and all that kind of stuff. And then with Rich Goulet of the same mindset, you know, we started the team camp and um, you, you just can't play the game and be successful if you're only going to do it from like November until February. And so you just have to give to give the kids a, the best opportunities. You had to have more things for them. And that meant somebody had to sort of organize them. And so nobody was jumping at the, you know, I'll organize that. I'll do that. I, well, I wanted my kids to do those things. So I just started to uh, organize them myself. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the downsides to that was I used to be quite involved with basketball BC. In fact, in the 85, 86, 87 era, uh, Rich Chambers was a head coach for the under-17 team, and I was his assistant. And so through that era, into the early 90s and 2000s, I was quite involved in the summer programs of Basketball BC, but I found I was just having to spend so much time on my own program developing the kids out here that I had, one of them had to go, and so I stopped being as involved with Basketball BC. You know, you, you only have so much time when you've got three kids and you've got a wife and yep. stuff like that. For sure. And and I think, too, the things that you're touching on as well, not only compete outside of just season time, but also compete against different people, compete against bigger people, stronger people, older people, the best players in the province. And that was one of the unique things about team camp was you could walk in the gym and you'd have, you know, you'd watch two games and you'd see three of the best four teams in the province, maybe if it was the right matchup, you know, and so just day in, day out, seeing these kids work. And I think, again, through osmosis, you know, the kids, you, you just soak that in Well, either you Either you buy in more to it as a player or you're like, well, this isn't really for me, right? And it's kind of one way or the other. And one of the other things that, you know, I've been doing and been involved with running is the, uh, on Wednesday nights, we've run uh, Spring League at Terry Fox. Yep. Words of 12 teams or more, right? Well, uh, Heritage Woods gyms, Fox gym, and then the Ridge gym. Uh, and it's been awesome, you know, that experience. Eh? And, you know, I mean, today they're charging so much money for all these tournaments and uh, joining these clubs and, you know, so we were able to keep the prices down and involve so many of the best teams around. Uh, that was another really good thing. 
Yeah. And this whole idea of spring leagues and such, I mean, for a number of years, starting back in the mid 80s and right through the early 2000s, what I would do is we would go down to Mount Vernon and play in their spring spring yeah, league. I remember that. Yeah. Then we play in the Tuesday spring league and the Wednesday spring league. And then we do summer camps and uh, summer team things, tournaments. And then in the fall, I would take the kids down to uh, the Space Needle in Seattle. And they had an old high school gym there. I forget the name of it. And we would play in the fall league in Seattle. So our kids were getting, you know, 50, 60 games out of season. Yeah. And that's what all the better teams are doing. Yeah, yeah. And then as things changed, we couldn't do as much of that. But yeah. in the late 80s, we still had a real good run of athletes coming from Westview and Ridge. And so in 89, we're in the BC final. And we lost um, in the BC final to uh, our neighbor school called Pitt Meadows. And we played them five times that year. We split in league. We uh, won the league playoff. We beat them in the Fraser Valley. And we lost to them in the BC final. We played five times and had a net differential, point differential of seven points. No way. Over five games. Holy smokes. That's it crazy. You had to get to the gym early to get a seat. And the seat chairs uh, were at the end lines. I was going to say, what were those games and experiences like? I mean, you know, Pitt and Ridge, both pretty good-sized gyms, but obviously packed to the to the gills. They were. You know, mm-hmm. that was the late 80s. And uh, really, mainly it was in the late 80s, early, early 90s, where we had this rival. We were both in the same league, too. So, uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a great rivalry. And, and we played them in the BC final. And I'll never forget, um, we're, in those days, you had right of option. You didn't have to shoot foul shots. Come on. So, we, we, were, we were fouling at the end to get – we're down by three. So we're fouling at the end to get the ball, and they just kept taking right of option. And then – So just a side out? Side out at center <laughs> for one or two years. There's there's no, a, there's and there's no max? There's no cap? Like just unlimited – Three times you want, or you can decide not to do it. Just take the foul shots. Right. So um, wow. Rich decided this was a real good philosophy <laughs> to go with us. Uh, do a, do against us, and they played a triangle and two on us, and um, we had a guy called Dean Adams, a guard. Oh, yeah. And Al Tusher was checking him, a guy who happens to coach at Fraser Valley, and uh, we're down uh, three, and Dean has the ball in the left corner. Now we're down to about 30 seconds or so left in the game, and he goes up and takes the shot. <sighs> Al Tusher blocks it. He lands, Adams lands, and goes immediately back up, swish. Foot hit the three-point line. No way. Only a two We lose by one. And the irony, right? The irony of that happening on in your favor when you make that run at the BCs, right? You know, the guy yeah. shoots a long two and it works in your favor and you pull it out in overtime, right? So it's just, the game is so funny and to go on those type of runs. You need lady luck. 100%. You need talent. <laughs> you need skills. You need coaching. but And you need to be interviewed. You need lady luck. No, it's it's so true. Are there any other seasons along the way that stick out to you? Some, you know, like a, a wild run or, um, I mean, you've coached so many different teams and just maybe we can also talk about, you know, you touched on the, the club scene in BC and things like that. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what you feel are the goods and bads. And as a province, what is it that we need to do? I mean, I'm not sure if you listened to the Rich and Don episode. Rich was very, um, very straightforward about his thoughts about what basketball BC needs to do to improve. And so for you, whenever you decide to walk away from this game, you know, I'm guessing it's going to be hard for you, but 
what are some things that young coaches like myself and others can do to make sure that the game still is in a good place when legends like yourself and, you know, obviously rest in peace to Rich Goulet and Richie and these, these guys like yourself that have been doing it for, you know, decades uh, are gone. How do we continue the game? Well, should I go with the first part, you sure. know, the other rest of the sort of uh, uh, seasons, et cetera. Well, we, we maintained, uh, you know, we were f- still a fairly strong uh, group right through, especially to the late 90s. Had some teams that were fifth and stuff like that. I remember in 1997, probably the last real notorious, or not notorious, but uh, interesting year, 1997, we played in the final against Kitsilino. And, uh, Is that GM place, right? A GM place with the snow coming down. That's been in, right. We've been, in, we've been there the pr- year prior. We were at, B, at uh, BC Place, not BC Place, but uh, GM Place, two years. So the year before, I think we were fifth, we lost to a guy called, um, oh, he played for Salmon Armand, just a great guard. Jordy McTavish. Jordy McTavish. I remember playing against them in the, in the semi-quarterfinals, I think it was. No, maybe the semis. I think it was the quarters. And we played a triangle and two on Jordy and another guy. Andrew Roy, probably. And in the second half, this third, this third guy decided he's just going to beat us. So they beat us. And <laughs> yeah. then we uh, – so then the next year, most of the kids were back. So we got to the final. And one of the most interesting parts of that tournament was in the semis we played MEI. And they had uh, – I believe it was – I don't know if Prentice was with them that year or not. Okay. But they had a very good team. We were down three, and there was like five seconds left on the clock. And we had the ball under our basket for a throw-in. And we threw it in off a screen to our best shooter. And then they closed on him right away. So we kicked it to the top of the key, top the top of the circle, outside the three. And a kid who went on and played Division One baseball called Mike Eskelson, he, he shot the ball. <clears throat> Buzzer went. Hit the back of the rim. Hit the front of the rim. Hit the back of the rim went in tie ot we went play uh, uh randy coots and um what's his name kitsilino in the final and um we went triangle and two on chris porteous and what was the tall levon kendall levon kendall yeah and so we're i think we're tied or up a bit at the half and then they had a third guy happened to come in from a school called St. George's. Not trying to say anything here, but he was a very good player about six five, and he decided he's going to maybe score a few baskets. We lost by ten kids in the final. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about those runs, though, you like you know, Levon's a future national teamer. He's a pro. You know, Porteous could fill it up like the best of them. I mean, it wasn't uh, well, the thing that I no they had they had another guy. They had two other guys. It wasn't Porteous. No, no. Yeah, it was Porteous and two other guys. One of them played at UBC, and another one, tall guy, he played uh, at another school down south. Anyway, yeah, they were talented for sure. Scott Morrison? No. Not Scott Scott Morrison. No. Kids. Um, Oh, Argyle. Yeah, come on, Corbs. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. You know, and it's not. It's great being a GM place. Yeah, you liked it, eh? Everything was awesome. Yeah, it really was. But I think the price was just a bit too much. We went to go to the Agrodome then. So, which great place as well and that's the thing i think too is and it's just it's just natural because there's so many more schools but even in the mid 90s to late 90s like each team had two three like once you got to a quarterfinal there was two to four or five collegiate level guys on each team you know what i mean so it wasn't like hey we can just box in one or denied you know jordy it's like 
Jordy played with Andrew Roy. Andrew Roy had a great career at the University College of the Caribou. You know what I mean? So it just as there was so much talent in each game, you really had to be on top of things as a coach with your your game plan. And not just talent. Lots of times, big size talent. Yeah, yeah. Big, Especially uh, you know, in the Valley. Morgan's at uh, Terry Fox. Yeah. I mean, there were so many. Like we one year in 2006 – which would be the beginning of the end for us because we just didn't have the talent coming. We we started a, a guy who was six eleven, and then the other guy with him was six eleven. We had two six eleven starting, and we had another guy in playing the forward spot. He was six five, and our point guard was six two. The problem was our guard play was a little bit uh, you know deficient. In yeah. fact, one of the kids, uh, the six eleven kid, uh, Jared Casey was his name. He went down oh, and played yeah. uh, division at the University of San Francisco. Yeah, I remember him. I remember seeing his first game at the University of San Francisco it was on national TV against Ohio State. No way. And he looked, did not look out of place. Yeah. He was yeah, very no, I remember that name. That's a good throwback. You dropped some good names. I remember that guy. Yeah. I remember in the spring when he signed his letter of intent, these Division One guys, Belmont and that, were coming up and watching him in open gyms in September, eh? Mm-hmm. And uh, we were playing cross court. And these guys would come in and watch and they'd say, wow. That guy's got skills. Yeah. Well, we're playing with grade eights and nines against each other, right? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but anyway. No, there are some big, talented kids, eh, that there aren't today. It's a different yeah. style of game now. But, I mean, like I'm sure Rich and Don mentioned it, I, I still believe that a lot of those teams, most of them, probably would win most of the BC championships right now. They did mention that, yeah. I mean, if you're shooting 75% of your shots below the dotted circle, you might have a chance to win a few games. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I believe they said, Donnie said, you know, other than um, that Kelowna team with um, Shepard and um, whoever the, the guard, what's his, was his name anyways? Mercier. Mercier. Yeah. You know, he said that was kind of in the last 12, 15 years, the best team they've seen in a long time. And then just talk about someone who's seen the landscape of basketball change so much before we sort of have some fun questions and let you move on with the rest of your day. Thanks for your time. But just, you know, we're talking about seeing the provincials go from War Memorial to the Agrodome, back to GM Place, to the Agrodome, now at the Langley Event Centre, right? At least the top tier, but then also knowing what's happening with the double A's and their thing in Kamloops and how do we get the single A's? Like, you've seen so much and you've seen so many things. And I know a lot of the stuff that you're seeing these days is hard. But the future of basketball in our province, what do we do to maintain a high level? And what do we do to maintain and keep good coaches? Well, LEC, um, starting with a number of past presidents, right through the last few years, with we've been able to set up, I think, probably the best situation for all levels of basketball at LEC. If you go to LEC on the final night and watch the four championship games, and let's say you're watching the single A or the double A final. When that game is over, the teams that have won or been involved in it, they think they've just won the world championships. Whereas before, you know, the single A was out in who knows where, Puskape, the double A's were in Kamloops. I mean, they're great places, right? For sure. But there wasn't the same amount of notoriety and involvement and excitement, you know, as there is right now. I mean, now we've established, I think, the best possible scenario for high school boys basketball and our hope is that we'll be able to continue it but as you know now we've got we've come into a new era 
of BC school sports taking over everything. And um, fortunately for us, because of the size and the scope of what we're doing, they haven't changed very much at this point. They seem to be willing to let us continue to operate it the way we are. And so from that perspective, we're hoping things will be able to continue. But I do know they've made a number of changes in a number of the other sports, even down to when they play their championships and what some of the rules may be. So, you know, there's a dark cloud on the horizon because we basically, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but I mean, we, um, up until now, we've had in every, each sport a key group of individuals who have been involved seriously in their sport, are very concerned about their sport, concerned about the kids who play it, and have basically had hands-on dealing with issues, immediately solving them. There have been some problems, of course, but now Big Brother has taken over. I mean, it's like a huge bureaucracy of 14 committees. The decision-making, the inability to make decisions on a quick basis, who's going to be involved in the decision-making, it's a dark cloud for the how things are going to continue in the future. And it's really a shame because for 90% of the teams, they were going, everything was going fine. And now, for whatever reasons, and there are a variety of them, a number of people think this is going to be better. Well, I have to totally disagree because I just think the experience for kids and the um, and, and for the sport, individual sports is just going to be it's going to be impacted in a negative way. It, these, it, school sports have such a har- large meaning in terms of the culture of schools. And the, the, the trend now is becoming more and more, let's de-emphasize competitiveness, involvement. And so it's going to become much more, you know, milk toast approach. Everybody gets an award. Everything's nice. Well, you know what? I, I just firmly believe that we need to have opportunities for kids who want to seek excellence. Do we not have those opportunities for in the academics? Of course we do. Kids mm-hmm. who are taking senior electives, science and math and English and that, they have tremendous opportunities in terms of getting scholarships. That's not being down, you know, that's not being less emphasized. They have all sorts of opportunities and, and in music programs and that. But now we don't seem to maybe want to provide the same opportunities for seeking excellence for extracurricular. I don't understand. Are we trying to develop the whole kid and opportunities for all kids? So the trend I see right now is is not moving in that direction. So I think it's going to be a sad day for schools if these things are now taken, you know, gradually taken away, put into high school environments where there's less sort of notoriety and less involvement, less excitement. And then that takes us to the club situation. Mm -hmm. They're sitting there right now and they're just chomping at the bit. And they're just saying to themselves, we can't compete with the BC high school championships. We just don't have the organizational opportunities and the, you know, the, the feeling that kids have for playing for their schools. But now with BC school sports there, they're going to de-emphasize that. So our opportunities now for starting to provide leagues for kids that go all year long, you know, and the money grab will continue. I mean, I'm, I know I'm not saying the right politically right things here, but the difference between right now, the difference between clubs and high school sports, high school basketball is enormous. On the club side, it's a money driven, you know, job. 
Okay, and they provide all kinds of opportunities for kids to play games, but it's costly. And, you know, the amount of coaching, I'm sorry, involved in fundamentals and, and competing for games is not the same as in high school, where kids are being developed from the grade eight on in terms of developing their skills. And you can't tell me that a coach in preparing for a high school game is not putting a lot more energy into it and then in preparing for the third game of the day in some sort of a club championship. So the game and, and, and the thing is the club situation here is totally different than in Europe and Australia. Yeah. In Europe and Australia, they have a really highly developed skill-based approach to clubs in those countries. They're doing a tremendous job. But here are clubs Fundamental. Are yeah. foremost, I think, driven by the dollar. Hate to say it, but yeah. that seems to be the case. Yeah. And maybe that'll evolve and it'll get better. If things continue the way they are, the clubs are going to continue to take inroads into, like even last year, there are many cases where a kid would have to go to a club practice or go to a high school grade nine or eight practice. He'd go to the club practice because the parents think it's better because they're paying money, you know? And so my biggest fear is basketball in particular here now is going to become like high school soccer. If you have enough kids in high school who play in a club that you can have a team, then you will have a high school basketball team. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the story that Howard Samir once told us back in, I don't know when it was, the 80s or 90s. This girls' soccer was in Richmond. And this girls' soccer team, I won't mention the name of the school, they won the BC, I think, AA soccer championship. And after the championship was over, can I Howard guess? interviewed them. Yeah. No practices, and right? The situation the girls had created was they went to the administration, the AD, before the season and said, got a lot of good girls' soccer players here in the school. Will you let us be the school team? And they said, well, yes. But then, they, then the girls said, but there's a stipulation. We won't practice. We'll just play the games. And they won, won the BCs. Won the BCs. Yeah. <laughs> so if that's where high school basketball is headed, it's pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, you brought so many things. And to touch on the school sports thing, now that, you know, being part of the executive, I'm excited to learn from from all of you and see kind of the behind the scenes stuff that happens with our sport. And it's a bit of a kind of wait to see what happens. But my hope is that we don't start to take away from things that are already successful to build other things up. You know, I, I think if if we want things to be better, we'll build those up. You know, like people have approached our school many times because, as you know, the chancellor, which you guys come to every year, 16 teams. Have you thought about combining it and going co-ed eight and eight? And I said, well, no. Well, why not? You know, well, if if we need to make the girls and give them some notary and like we've had some amazing girls teams over the last 10 years, yeah. let's make the girls chancellor just as important. Let's have a pep rally for it. Let's do the exact same. Let's have the same coaches room. Like let's build it up. So it's at the same level as opposed to taking away. So I hope that, you know, someone doesn't go and start to take away from from the boys basketball so that another sport can benefit from it. If that other sport needs to be better, what do we do to make that structure better? And so um, I hear you and then, and, and it's going to be an interesting, and I, unfortunately it's kind of just one of those time will tell things. And then, you know, your, your points on the club and. But I don't think the agenda that BC school sports has, mm -hmm. as I you know looked at it is to make things better. I think they'll make things better for maybe some of the programs, some of the sports that are really struggling, mm -hmm. but their goal, for example, with boys basketball or, or football, they haven't come to us as administrator groups uh, or the former commissions and said, we want to make your game better. We want to make it more high profile. I've never heard that term used. Right. So we're fighting to maintain status quo. 
Interesting. Well, never even thought of it like that. Yeah. And in, and who knows what the future too. And, and you get to this point where, you know, if I'm a young person, I'm finishing my PDP and I'm teaching at a, at a middle school or something like that. And, and, um, that uh, the local junior high or senior high comes and says, Hey, you know, can you coach our junior team this year? Or if a club in the community comes and says, Hey, we'll give you X grand to run Tuesday, Thursday nights of our, I mean, you know, as a young person, with the, you know, expense, how expensive Vancouver is and, you know, looking to get a property, it's like, what is the choice they're going to make? So you get these young coaches who are teaching, but we can't even get them to be a part because again, there's so many other behind the scenes scenarios that are involved, right? Well, there's no encouragement, emphasis on getting young people involved in doing things after school now in education. In fact, there's, there's a discouragement by the unions, by BCTF by the local unions. Don't get involved. In fact, I know people who have just finished PDP over the last few years who've been literally told by their, their sponsors, don't do don't get involved after school. Yeah. Just focus on your academics. And so and also what's changed is that the um, emphasis on education and who goes into education now, the academic you know requirements now are so strong, so high. That, you know, it's discouraging people who have been involved, say, in high school, there are a lot of activities, they look to really be involved, but by being so involved, they let their academics suffer a little bit. Oh, they still pass, they still do well, but they don't achieve 86 percentiles and stuff like that. So they're not being encouraged to go into the faculty, into education. Right. And so you have different kinds of people, so it's different culture totally. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just, it's different. Yeah. And, and the negative impact of it, the bad part of it is there's not as many people are getting involved with, with kids after school. Wow. Like I never have ever thought of it that way, but I feel like you're talking directly to me, you know, in, in high school. Was I wasn't black- talking to you, Aaron, because you are involved. <laughs> I know, but just in terms of if, if I was in today's scenario, right. Un, I was unmotivated in high school. You know, I loved hanging out with my buddies and playing sports. You know, I could get by with C pluses and the odd B you know, right. when I decided to apply myself, I just wasn't there yet. I was immature. But then I couldn't get into those other schools and get that education degree. You know, who knows where I would, it's just I've never really thought of it like that. It's a super interesting and, and great point that I think you're making. Yeah, it's uh, it's just things are different now in so many levels. This has been great. Um, ready to do some fun questions before we kind of get you on your way here? Sure, sure. Okay. Are you a music guy? Not really. Okay. Old rock and roll. Okay. Do oh. you do you read? No, I don't read much anymore. Jeez. Okay. Well, that's it for uh, Hoop's Journey. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. So let's go with the music then. Oh, sure. What, what old rock and roll band or what you get to see one group, best seat in the house, dead or alive, doesn't matter. Beach tomorrow, Boys. The Beach Boys. Ooh. That's a fast answer. Did you see them live before? Or? No, I've never no. actually seen them live, but the number of songs they've got that have an appeal. Down when you're in Palm Springs, having some <laughs> breakfast, getting ready to go for your 18 holes, you're bu- bumping some Beach Boys. Okay. All right. Okay. Never would have guessed that. To you, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Ever. I don't think it's close. Oh, it's a bit close. Michael Jordan. Yeah. Steve Nash is right there with him as a second. Oh. In terms of the, the 
I, I, in well, in terms of, it depends how you want to reference it. My favorites would be in that order. Okay. Maybe even flipped a bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of the most talented ever, mm. uh, most impactful, I'd have to say Michael Jordan. And then there's so many others. LeBron James, you have to give him consideration. What about Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Oscar, you know, Robertson? I mean, there's just so many great players that people look at them now and they say, oh, well, look, at he couldn't do that. He couldn't really do that. He wasn't that good a shape. But if you put them in this in today's culture with all the different nutritional and training opportunities, they'd still be some of the greatest. I agree. Did you ever get the chance to work with Steve or coach Steve or just always coached against him? It was the first year I never was involved with Basketball BC ah. that he came on the scene. So I never had a, like a direct personal contact with him. Mm-hmm. Although, um, one funny little story, he was playing for Phoenix and one of my ex-players is a construction guy and he was doing construction work in Phoenix and I guess on the arena where the sons played. Okay. And so this guy said to Steve one day, he said, um, well, yeah, I used to play basketball up in, um, in BC. Would you be willing to sign this, um, this picture of you? Uh, to my coach and then Steve Nash. And Steve said, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Who's your coach? I said, he said, well, it was Ken Dockendor. He said, oh, yeah, I remember that name. And so he signed an autographed picture for himself. Awesome. And this kid, this guy used to play for me, sent it up. So that's not you know, amazing. You know, he was awesome. He was the thing that I enjoyed most about watching Steve play was you could just put yourself in his body and his mind. And just as he'd bring the ball down the floor, you could just say, okay, now where's he going to pass it? Mm. And you could just sort of, you could visualize being his part of his mind and body as to how he would see the game and how he would play the game. Yeah. He, he had such an impact on the game. And, he really uh, did. And he's just a great guy too. And just what yes. he's been able to, you know, turn, po I mean, forget the coaching, just who he's become and what he's like. He's just a, yeah. 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 Great ambassador. Who've been some of the most important people in your life? My parents first, foremost, my, um, well, and, and, you know, not in any particular order, but obviously a lot of the coaches I've had an impact mm -hmm. with and my, my late wife, um, uh, Cindy Thompson, she, had a, you know, a real impact on my life. In fact, we, that was some of the greatest times of my life because, um, she coached, um, a number of sports and, uh, uh, senior girls basketball in particular at Maple Ridge. And she was also president of the BC high school girls basketball. They were able to get uh, the BC High School Championships to um, to uh, Cap College, and she had some of the best teams around at that time. Maple Ridge was a real dominant force in girls basketball, and she was also a great um, uh, field hockey coach. We go to the BC, so we worked together really well with the girls and the boys, and that was through an era of the you know the eighties and uh, late eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands, and then she passed in two thousand fifteen. So. Quick producer's note here, about five minutes after we concluded our call, uh, Ken ends up sending us a text back saying that he forgot his daughters. And I think the direct quote is, if they happen to listen, they may never talk to me again. So Tanya, Nicole, and Karen, your dad loves you. He considers you a super important part of his life. Back to the show. Well, rest in peace to her. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I remember the name specifically as well. So, and I know, uh, we had, um, oh my God, who's our wrestling coach at Fox? Why is he, I should know his daughter went to Maple Ridge, uh, Mike Ross, Mike Ross, big yeah. Mike Ross. Yeah. And yeah. I remember his daughter was, he at, played was for, at 
I think she played for my white. Yeah, she might have. Yeah, I think she yeah. did. She would have yeah. been a couple of years after me, I think, like 96, 7-ish, somewhere around there. Would she have? Yeah, yeah. yeah. About the time she was stopping her, she had a real serious back operation, so I had to go become an English you know, teacher. Didn't yeah, yeah. That, but, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Who are some of the greatest players that you've coached against that stick out to you, whether they were down across the border or maybe uh, do you, anybody stand out where you're like, wow, that was... Oh. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about coaching against J.D. Jackson. I can only imagine over 50 years the, the players that you've seen. Well, there's been so many of them, right? I mean, a number of them, I, back in the era of uh, so just starting from where our league was, we, you know, there was the um, the breaches at Mission. Oh, and yeah. Guys like that, eh? the, the talent they had. And then at Abbotsford, you had that team that had those big kids. Um, and then that Chico, the guard that came up from Seattle, Norm Bradley coaching them. There's so many good uh, players in that era out of, well, out of Abbotsford. And then MEI had all kinds of big, strong, athletic guys. George Bergen in that era. No, George was, he was a player just a bit before me, I think. But they had so many great players. Mm -hmm. And then Centennial, they had so many good ones. Um, and Terry Fox, like your era and before that, the Morgans and that. Um, there were just, there's so many. And then, of course, the, uh, the good kids who played for Kitsilino, North Surrey with uh, Simon Dykstra and that group, right? Mm. Uh, I remember playing Simon Dykstra and um, Rich Ralston and uh, Kerry Rich Ralston, yeah, okay. In, in the final, in the semifinal to go to the BCs at, at, at uh, Simon Fraser, Fraser Valleys. And we did a triangle and two on um, Simon and um, I guess it was uh, Rich Ralston. No, Kerry Rokosh. And then uh, to the third and fourth quarter, and uh, I think it was Rokosh. He just decided, hey, enough of this crap. We're going to beat these guys. That was it. <laughs> There's just so many good teams. Yeah. You can't even, you know, and so many great players and so many good coaches. And it was like the, you know, I hate to say this, but we've said it many times. It was like the best of times, the best of basketball in high school that mm -hmm. we sort of went through. But there's all sorts of reasons. There's so many other things that are going on now. For sure. I mean, social media and all the different things. And it's just unfortunate that we've lost a little bit of that. Because yeah. the number of talented players and, and the great teams it's going to be hard to duplicate. And I mean, just when you name just those, those three guys alone, all on one team, it's like, wow, you know, like, and it's pretty cool. Uh, how do you feel about ketchup on macaroni? The only way to eat macaroni. Whoa. If you don't I have ketchup on macaroni, you're in trouble. Whoa. Come in hot. I did not anticipate this whatsoever. Not, not hot ketchup. Not hot nope. ketchup. Just regular. Yeah, regular. I wonder how I'm going to edit this one. What are we going to do here? Ken Dockendorf, of all people, is pro ketchup on macaroni. Wow. But now I've gone to more of a vegetarian diet. Okay. Vegetables, so yeah. not a lot of past in my <laughs> diet right now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, okay. So you're, you're eating healthier, but if, if you have a slip up on the day or you're out on the course and you're getting munchy, what bag of chips are you getting? Are you, are you a chip guy? Do you like chips? Chips if it's a real hot day for dehydration. Yeah. But if you just want a real treat, how can you beat Purdy's chocolates? Purdy's chocolates. Hey, Ooh. okay. <laughs> Richie, Richie said just original Lay's. That's it. That's the only chip he eats. I wanted to, I wanted to throw my microphone at him when he told me that. What's the one that's what's that's got the um, the orange or what's it called? It's not the ketchup, but anyway, I can't remember. Purdy's chocolates. Hmm. 
That's, you know, chocolate's a whole nother topic we could get into. Um, We better not. This has been so awesome, Coach. Thanks for being with us. And just one one more question before you go, um, and you can have any last reflections as well, is looking back on your time, you know, someone who's still involved in the game, but, you know, getting to that point of maybe starting to think about life after coaching, if you could do it all again, you would what? Do it all again. <laughs> I, I uh, went into business early. And then when I um, went into education after being in business, I think one of the main indicators of what I, how I felt about my job and everything was I never checked my check every month. I didn't uh-huh. know how much money I made. It was just teaching and coaching has been uh, very important to me and has been, uh, it's just been so rewarding in so many ways. I love it. Yeah. And I think the young, the young people that we have the opportunity to work with and you know, the coaching relationship is tough. It can be hard because not every kid is going to see eye to eye with you. You have to have tough conversations or maybe things don't go as well. But I think what we're able to get back, I don't even know if these young men, they bring to us upon our own reflections, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just, it's different now and parents are a little more involved and uh, club, you know, clubs a little more involved and it's just more diluted. There's so many more things going on, but uh, I've had, you know, I have no regrets. Uh, It's been a great experience in every way, you know, hopefully it'll be able to continue, but being a volunteer like Jeff Gurley in Vancouver and Maple Ridge, who knows what might happen. It'd be great to be able to continue though. And as you get older and as you get into retirement times, it's very important that you do do things that you like. Very important. Love it, man. Dropping the knowledge. That it? No more No more reflections? Have, you, have we talked you out for the day? Talked me out for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Um, from Corbin and myself, thanks for being with us. From myself personally, as someone who, you know, I grew up in the Fraser Valley area, spent a lot of time in your gym, whether it be team camp, whether it be spring league, whether it be league games. Um, thank you for all you've done for the game. Thank you for your mentorship. Thank you for your coaching, your leadership. Um, you're a phenomenal guy. Um, you're a Hall of Famer. And you've impacted not only players, but so many people that have turned themselves into coaches. You've impacted their lives as well. And you've made all of our lives greater for the for the stuff that you've done for the game. So on behalf of A Hoops Journey and ourselves, we do appreciate everything that you've done and continue to do, Mr. Dockendorf. Well, Aaron, uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been a real pleasure, you know, dealing with people like yourself. They've made it very enjoyable. And good to see people like yourself who've gone from being players to being coaches, teachers. Uh, it's been a very rewarding uh you know, opportunity for me. And I thank you. You're welcome. And your words are uh, very, uh, <laughs> are very nice and I appreciate them, but uh, working with people like yourself and that has been the most rewarding. Awesome. And I feel the same coach. I do know how much money it goes in because my wife makes me look, but I feel the same about uh, the opportunity that I get each day. And it's because of the people that I'm, that I was able to shadow and, and be like, like yourself, like Rich Chambers, um, you're the ones that I wanted to be, become and I get the opportunity to do it every day. So thank you so much. What an amazing episode. We wish you nothing but the best. Enjoy the rest of August. We, uh, we know the heat won't bother you. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to uh, our next executive meeting where we can have some laughs and figure out how we continue to make this game um, even more beautiful in our province. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. You're welcome amazing episode thanks to our sponsors parkside brewery and good lad clothing and uh like subscribe this is a great one see you on the next episode